is New Albion calling. New Albion calling. Good evening. I'm Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb, and you are listening to the ARC Light Program. Coming up soon is our last program of the day, Slumbertime Stories. And I know many of you look forward to this. Including this listener, who has taken the trouble to write in with her thoughts. Well, well, I hope they have this time, Mabel. I really don't know what I shall do. Dear Sirs. Well, this is more encouraging at least, Mabel. Dear Sirs. Why, oh why, oh why, must we put up with the constant low-flying magnificent men and women in their flying machines and sundry paraphernalia that trouble our herd of pygmy goats so much at this time of year? Oh why, why, why? Is that too much to ask? I ask you. Why, why, why? Why, oh, 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 why? On a different note, the petunias have come up lovely this year. Yours imploringly, Ms. Bromide Pillock. P.S. Why? Oh, why? Oh, why? Oh, why? Oh, why? Uh, well, now, Miss Pillock, I'm, I'm very sorry for your troubles, but I really do wonder what you think we can do about it. Pygmy goats are hardly my forte. Uh, Mabel, uh, we'll have to have words later. Anyway, I'm so sorry, dear listener. Let us draw a discreet veil over that and stride forthrightly into the vestibule of Moving Swiftly On. Now on the light programme, it is time for Slumber Time Stories. And this week we bring you a spooky offering that will send a shiver down your spine, read by yours truly, Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb. Tobias Fitch by Darren Callum. Posing bulk of Tobias Fitch filled the doorway of the very last coach of the TTCE as it puffed, wheezed, and clanked to a halt at Findumon Station. He hesitated for just a heartbeat or two, scanning the almost deserted platform, allowing his senses to read any signs of danger before his body was even fully awake. It had been a long and restless journey. But at least it hadn't been the route that had caused him a sleepless night. The TTCE, or Tri-Transcontinental Express, was a brutally simple idea. Three parallel tracks with state-of-the-art, rocket-assisted, sky-legend-class locomotives harnessed together like a modernist team of horses. Between them, they pull a single line of armoured sleeper cars, the power-to-weight ratio ensuring seemingly effortless acceleration. The only drawback being that bends are not exactly on the cards for this particular three-headed iron dragon. So the TTCE line, the only one there is, ploughs a relentlessly straight triple furrow from one side of the continent to the other equally disdainful of border, personal property, or natural obstacle. Pretty much how Fitch himself liked to operate. His only regret on this cold, grey, blustery morning was that the triple-tracked train couldn't deliver him and his precious cargo directly into the bustling heart of the old metropolis. 
Gratified that Platform 13 seemed to hold no immediate threats to his aching body, Fitch wrapped his floor-length leather trench coat around him and put a booted foot firmly onto the narrow brick strip. In his left hand, he held a battered but extremely robust-looking attaché case. His grip was firm, and he held it close while still viewing the vicinity with caution. The tight hold, however, was somewhat superfluous, as the case in question was in fact fastened to his wrist by means of a heavy chain and brass handcuff. So precious, so vital to national security were its contents that he could not allow himself to be separated from it under any circumstances, casual, accidental, or violent. His right hand hovered constantly in the opening of his coat near his hips, where a brace of custom-made silver-plated pistols hung in quick-draw holsters. The seven-chambered weapons had extricated him from trouble on numerous occasions when opponents had reckoned on only six bullets per loading. The thick leather of his coat hid other secrets too. Additional weapons, including assorted throwing knives, grenades, poisons, and a smaller automatic pistol, plus steel plating over vital organs and archeries. All of this now conspired with his aching, sleep-deprived limbs to make the walk from the back of the train to the front of the monster all the more laboured. Nevertheless, Fitch did not regret the slow progress. It gave him time to go meticulously over the final details of his four-day-long journey. Fitch had been tasked by rocket-assisted pigeon at barely an hour's notice to retrieve the case from a numbered locker at a far-flung Empire Postal Depot, secure it to his person, and then make his way by airship, steam-powered paddle steamer, and stagecoach to the furthest terminus of the TCCE. He had then carefully selected the very last sleeper cabin in the train for its two-day cross-continental rush. The final leg of this clandestine adventure was to cross the channel and deliver his cargo to another anonymous safe locker at the King's Station, where, he was assured, the release key and his six-figure payoff awaited him in return. There were only three methods by which this crossing could be effected from here, a slow and cheap steamer, a more expensive but a little quicker airship service, or and the selection of this means hinted again at the importance of his mission. An extremely expensive, but very fast, personal ornithopter flight. According to terse instructions, the crossing was booked and the pilot was waiting at a nearby aerodrome. Fitch need make no other arrangements bar finding a taxicab to transport him there. Coming up to the business end of the locomotives, the noise and general hubbub of the platform swelled in intensity. Here, the three mighty engines were being slowly uncoupled on their parallel tracks by a small number of grimy engineers, seemingly from all corners of the globe. The outside trains were used in transit to pull a sizable number of goaltenders and the system of pulleys and conveyor belts used to feed the boilers each tender being discarded as they emptied to increase speed still further. Anxious to locate the cab rank and not tarry too long in an unknown location, 
Fitch continued his clumping stride into the maelstrom of metal, bustling workers and hissing steam. Peering forward to try and locate a porter or other station worker to guide him. Through the fog, he spied a man in a smart blue uniform, peaked cap, and elegant, if somewhat exotic, curled black moustache that seemed to fit the bill. Raising his free hand, he attempted to hail him, but lost him briefly in another snort of steam from the engines. Clearing the vapour, he expected to see the man only a yard or so away from him, but to his annoyance, and no little surprise, there was no sign of the porter. Indeed, the forecourt of the station seemed entirely deserted of both staff and passengers. He spun on his heels, trying to locate the official, but could see no glimpse of anyone of his appearance within a hundred yards. Indeed, right up to the station arches. It was as if the man had, to all intents and purposes, simply vanished into thin air. This disturbed Fitch somewhat. He liked certainty and solidity in his world, and this did not fit at all. He rubbed his eyes and tried to put aside the nagging doubt that this curious apparition had some connection to his top-secret cargo, preferring instead to put it down to tiredness and a trick of the dawn light. He reached into his greatcoat and extracted a small but ornately carved pill case. Popping it open, he selected something to liven his senses and swallowed it swiftly. With a tired shrug, he swung his nightbag further onto his shoulder and strode on towards the station portico, where, he reasoned, a slightly less ephemeral taxi might be hailed. Outside the station, the world was beginning to wake up from its drowsy slumber. The light was on the gloomy side of dull and the wind brisk as Fitch made a cautious approach to the meagre taxi rank. A mere three conveyances were making themselves available for service this early in the morning. Two were horse-drawn, and the third, a particularly unkempt-looking iron wagon, seemingly powered by a multi-patched gas bag that caught every gust of wind and appeared inclined to blow away at any second. One of the horses seemed the much safer bet. Even though as he approached one of the cabs, the harnessed nag appeared to be somewhat troubled by his presence. The cabbie seemed less bothered, and attempted to calm the beast and smarten himself up a little in the hope of a good tip early in the day. The driver was dark-skinned and heavy-featured. A well-used leather jerkin spoke of many years of hard work, but he was presentable enough. He tugged down a chainmail face guard to reveal an uneven mouth. Where to, sir? Fitch was impressed that the man had realised he was not local and spoken in English, but rather less impressed when he added, The wind's up a bit. He had no time to discuss the weather, and with a surly, Aerodrome Rothschild, he pulled himself and his two bags into the cabin and slammed the wooden panelled door shut. If the driver was offended, he gave no sign of it. Taking up the horse's leather reins, he hauled himself up into the driver's seat, readjusted his metal face covering and bade the horse be off, which, with only a little reluctance, it obeyed. The interior of the cab was dark and musty, 
with a crude metal speaking tube for communicating with the pilot. Fitch had no time for this either and banged the cover shut. The doors had only small metal slits with no glass, which meant that the passenger was somewhat exposed to the elements even within. Fitch did not mind this, as it meant he was reasonably well protected from prying eyes. Nevertheless, he stowed his case and bag carefully alongside the upholstered seat and then eased one of the silver pistols out onto his lap to facilitate its instantaneous use should the need arise. The strange incident in the steam had unsettled him, and the upper he had taken served now to only increase his sense of agitation. Although he had been told nothing officially about the nature of the case and its contents, a man of Fitch's profession tended not to survive very long without having a keen sense of what he was being asked to get involved in. The original location of the case, the vast amount of money being thrown at its return by fast but highly unorthodox routes, pointed him in one direction only. The Fourth Day Resurrection League, a highly illegal underground society, whispered to be advocates of black magic and even necromancy. Rumoured to have origins in the darkest areas of the subcontinent, the League's tentacle-like fingers were believed to have crept into the very highest echelons of power across the continent and even into the homeland itself. Not wanting to speculate too much, as it was not his way, Fitch could only assume that the contents contained within the chained case were critical in some way to beating this deadly and mysterious cult. He could only hope. Glancing out the narrow slit in the door, it was clear they were leaving the outskirts of the town and heading towards an expanse of open countryside that was likely to be the aerodrome. Another thought occurred to Fitch at this point, vanishing Porter aside, how seemingly untroubled this whole escapade had been so far. For a man like Fitch, with the scars of brutal action littering his body, this smooth passage seemed more suspicious than a series of fraught gun battles. Vehicles and rendezvous were always on time, and in the designated locations. Official documents had always been in order, staff only too happy to help, and then leave him to his own devices. In short, it stank. He would be only too happy when it was all over and he could return to more, how would you put it, physically demanding opportunities for reward. The coach performed a jarring 90-degree turn and passed through a set of wrought iron gates replete with two armed but disinterested-looking local militiamen. In truth, it appeared to Fitch, squinting through the door slit, they seemed almost not to see, as though under some kind of spell. He had no time to consider this further, as the coach juddered to a halt, and a braided porter with a pillbox hat snapped his door open and stepped to one side to allow him to alight. Fitch took his time, slowly reholstering his pistol, then checking in all directions, including upwards, before disembarking. He was indeed on the threshold of Aerodrome Rothschild, a peculiarly gothic building, resembling a grotesquely over-the-top cathedral more than a transport hub. Fitch was gratified that the porter in this case had not vanished, but nonetheless seemed reluctant to catch his gaze. 
The cabbie, on the other hand, was all smiles, winks and doffed cap. Fitch tipped him generously, and, somewhat belatedly picking up on Fitch's reticence for conversation, the man departed without another word. Sensing the chance of a tip himself, the porter sprang suddenly to life, attempting somewhat foolishly to take the nightbag from Fitch. With faster reflexes than you would expect of a man of his bulk, Fitch pushed him back to an arm's length distance and inclined his head to indicate the boy should lead the way into the ticket hall. Chastened, but seemingly still keen for remuneration, the boy did as he was bid, and Finch stomped along behind him. The lobby of the aerodrome was a dizzyingly high-ceilinged affair, with gothic arches bending up and out of sight in all directions. Indeed, the ceiling was so far distant that the chain holding the great gas-powered chandelier, swinging lazily and very ineffectually, in the centre of the hall, seemed to disappear after forty feet or so, simply into blackness. There was a single, large and extremely ornately carved booth at the far side of the room, with an officious-looking lady in uniform standing inside. The behatted lad attended him all the way to this desk, and lingered, gazing at the floor, presumably for his tip. Fitch dismissed him with a low growl, and he scuttled away. Reaching aside his trench coat to yet another internal pocket, Fitch withdrew a passport and official documents declaring his case to be a diplomatic bag and presented them without ceremony to the attendant. Looking up only to match his grizzled face to a similarly dog-eared photograph in an entirely real but extremely fictional passport, the lady barely glanced at him. Monsieur as a private flight, oui? Fitch nodded in curt agreement. Very well. The only thought their angers are B-11 to B-17. He nodded again, fully knowledgeable of the hangar he required. Monsieur is aware we have severe weight restrictions. I am, he growled, already growing bored with the conversation. Très bien, monsieur. The secure lockers are through the doors on the left. With this, he stamped his passport with more force than is strictly necessary, returned his documents, and pulled closed a fabric shutter with the word Ferme printed on it in bold letters, barely missing his fingertips. It seemed that customs formalities were concluded. Fitch found himself entirely alone in the vast, echoing chamber, and took the moment to return his documents from whence they had come, and dry swallow another of his pills from the ornate tin. At that moment, the doors to which he had been directed moved fractionally, and Fitch realised that someone had been watching him through the small stained-glass windows. His feelings of anxiety flooded back through him as he turned and rapidly advanced on the doors, his right hand already twitching towards his pistol. Without ceremony, he barged through the swing doors to find a corridor stretching for thirty feet or so. At the end of this corridor, a man in black velvet jacket and dress trousers paused briefly and looked back at him without particular emotion. Fitch was shocked to see the same ornately mustachioed face, cowled in tight black curls that had caught his eye so briefly on the station platform. His pistol was out of his holster in a single breath, but the man had already moved out of sight around the corner. 
He charged after him, ready now for the action he had craved for so many days. It can only have taken a second or two for him to traverse the wooden panelled corridor and turn the corner, glistening gun at the ready, senses fully heightened, pulse racing, adrenaline coursing. But as he rounded the corner to a large square room, Fitch nearly choked, as he found the man had once again vanished without a trace. No chance of putting this one down to a trick of the light or fatigue. The man with the distinctive facial features was simply gone. Fitch spun desperately around, pointing his silvered pistol in all directions and clutching his precious case tightly to his side. But the windowless room presented only a facade of dusty closed lockers. The only exit door on the most distant wall was closed and had a hand bolt thrown on the near side. No presence. No man. Nothing. Fitch felt his knees weaken slightly, his breath refusing to come in anything other than short stabs. Urgency was his only thought now. Unholy forces were abroad, and he wanted to be gone with all haste. He switched his pistol to his left hand, allowing the case to swing free, and unlocked the nearest locker. Frantically, he deposited his nightbag, second pistol, holsters, and anything else he could remove from his coat, including some of the armoured plates. The coat itself he was unable to remove due to the padlocked case, but all other items of weight were deposited. Finally, and most reluctantly, he placed his other large-barrelled pistol in the locker, and withdrew instead the smaller automatic gun. It would have to suffice. He closed and secured the locker, stuffing the key in his pocket, unbolted the door, and made his way with unseemly haste out onto the blustery airfield. The field was vast, and as deserted as the rest of the terminus. In all directions, barely a handful of small craft were visible, with most hangar doors resolutely shut. Either the ungodly hour, or the increasingly foul weather, or more likely both, was discouraging all but the foolhardiest of aviators today. Fitch could only pray that his pilot was one of these, and his machine was fueled and ready to go. The most cursory of signs detailed in which direction the various hangars lay, and Fitch made his way quickly glancing all the while around for another sighting of the apparition haunting him today. He need not have concerned himself with the punctuality of his rendezvous. Like everything else on this mission, the pilot and craft awaited outside the appointed hangar door. The ornithopter itself was a quite magnificent contraption. A silvered pod, barely big enough for two souls, was the head to a massive diesel-engined body, straddled by two colossal articulated wings. He saw the pilot, too, in a reassuring homeland uniform, flying cap already on, and silk scarf wrapped tightly around his face, busying himself with starting the stripped-back but still powerful-looking engine. It came to life with a roar and a thick black belch of acrid diesel smoke, whilst the real feathers on the wingtips rippled in the gusts of wind, making the vehicle look almost alive. Nearing the plane on the side indicated by the pilot, 
Fitch made a revolution again, his small gun out in front to make sure there was to be no final surprise attack. But nary a soul was visible on the air park. The craft had the markings he was told to expect, and he did not hesitate to squeeze himself into the pod and proceed to buckle himself in, keeping the pistol as ready for action as he could. The pilot completed his pre-flight checks and entered the cabin on the far side with a nod. Other than the return of this gesture, Fitch neither did nor said anything to keep him from his work, lest he delay their departure in any way. The last action of the pilot before entering had been to remove the chocks, and aided by the squalls, the machine was already in motion, the mighty engine now grinding so loudly that conversation would have been all but impossible anyway. The engine smoked heavily, and Fitch found he had to cover his own face with his sleeve to prevent himself choking. The magnificent flying machine bumped forward and creaked alarmingly as the pilot gunned the engine and turned the craft head-on into the wind. Finally, when enough ground speed was attained, the pilot pulled one of the myriads of levers and the full breadth of the wings was unfurled. With one enormous flap of the mechanism, they were airborne and turning sharply to begin to use the wind for accelerated lift. The cabin jerked and bounced with each awesome sweep of the wings, making it hard for Fitch to see if anyone was observing their departure. He fancied he made out a face in one of the hangar windows, but he might easily have imagined it, as the plane lurched, stomach-churningly sidewards. Fitch, though, relaxed a little, as with only four or five more beats of its magnificent wings, the ornithopter had them out over the coast and well on the way to the homeland. It was during one of these great lurching manoeuvres that the pilot's silk scarf slipped a little, and with a sudden cold dread, Fitch thought he saw the barest hint of a black, curled moustache above his lips. Fear and anxiety surged through his veins, and with the worst possible timing, the pistol slipped from his suddenly sweaty and shaking fingers and clattered into the oily footwell. With desperation, he lunged after it as the craft jolted violently in the opposing direction. It stayed just out of reach of his outstretched fingers and rattled around on the grated iron floor. The craft veered so far it nearly tipped over and Fitch found himself staring straight down at the cold black waters of the channel, now several thousand feet below. He fought back the urge to throw up and with every ounce of remaining strength extended his fingers to touch, then gradually ease into his palm the fallen weapon. Another alarming lurch and a great surge in height forced him back into the seat once more, but this time pistol in hand. Straining hard against the surging motion of the thopter and the G-forces tugging his torso, he turned to confront his companion. But the pilot was gone. A ghostly encounter indeed. 
Rest easy in your beds tonight, New Orbion, and fear not, for this is only a story. Or is it? Tune into the Light Program next week for another episode of Slumbertime Stories. For now, this is Theodore Pilkington Rhubarb signing off. Good night, New Orbion. I wish you dreams of a bright future. All stories, voices and characters created by and copyright to Darren Callow. All music by Charlotte Savigar. Tales of New Albion is available to buy from Amazon online stores or via Bandcamp, where the album is also available. For more information, go to www.talesofnewalbion.com or search for Tales of New Albion on Facebook. Tales of New Albion is a Monkey Teaspoon production for Albion Radiophonic Corporation.